Friends, our reading, readings in our feast uh, this weekend give us uh, an opportunity to reflect on the nature of joy and how it is that we're possibly supposed to be joyful in the midst of so much suffering in life, so much disappointment, so much heartache, so many difficulties. How, how is it that we can be commanded to be joyful? Because that's what the feast does today, the, this feast and why I'm wearing this beautiful rose uh, vestment. Um, is uh, It's called Gaudete Sunday, which is the Latin word for rejoice, but it's a command. It's, a, it's, a, it's rejoice, you must rejoice. And then, so we celebrate that this Sunday. And then we get Philippians 4.4 in the second reading. Paul says, Karete, rejoice, I say it again, rejoice always. Right? It's a command as well. You must rejoice. And it's like, how can we be commanded to rejoice? So the first distinction I think that's important is we have to really distinguish between emotional joy and spiritual joy. Right? Emotional joy cannot be commanded. Emotional joy, joy in, on the emotional level is the possession of some desire that we want, right? It's, it's feeling good. It's uh, getting the job we wanted or getting the grade we wanted or the girlfriend we wanted or whatever, right? It's the possession of some desire, right, on an emotional level that we have. And we know that th those things can't be commanded. Right? If, you, if you've ever tried to tell a person that's struggling in a bout of depression, like, just get out of it. You know, like, just make yourself feel better. Right? We know that doesn't work. The, the, the emotions can't be commanded like that. Right? They just are. They are what they are. How we respond uh, to the various things that happen to us and within us. And the complexity of our own psyche and the craziness that happens outside of us in the external world that we can't control make emotional joy just something that cannot be commanded. And, you know, Paul knew this better than anybody. It, it can't be emotional joy, what Paul's talking about in Philippians 4.4, because Paul went through a heck of a lot. I mean, the same guy telling us to rejoice always is the same guy that describes that he had been shipwrecked, that he had been tortured, that he had been stoned, that he had been rejected. Eventually, he's executed. I mean, the same guy telling us to rejoice in the Lord always and commanding it to us went through an incredible amount of tragedy in his life. The other way I was thinking of this was, or where this hit me hard, this distinction was, um, about nine years ago today, I was set to give my first homily. Um, I was, uh, my last year of seminary as a transitional deacon, and so they send you out to, to practice preaching for the first time. And my first homily was scheduled uh, nine years ago for Gaudete Sunday, the third Sunday of Advent. And so these readings were the same readings because we're on a three-year cycle, and so it was a couple of cycles ago, nine years ago. And so, you know, it's my first homily ever. Okay, so like, I'm, you know, I'm working all week. I have no idea what I'm doing, and I'm trying to figure out how to do this. And so I prepare what I think is a halfway decent first homily, and then tragically, on December 12th, that Friday, uh, was the Sandy Hook uh, shooting, the elementary school shooting. And this was going to be the reading. 
rejoice. I say it again to you, rejoice, always. And of course, I had to scrap my homily um, and to rewrite it, right? Somehow enter into something. Uh, I mean, it was a terrible time, really, to have a first homily because I didn't know what to do. But I was also thinking about those parents because I read a number of testimonies from the parents uh, of the children afterward who went to Sunday that two days later. A number of them were Catholic, belonged to this Dominican parish uh, right in town there. And they went to Mass two days after their children had been killed. And they heard this reading. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again. Rejoice. Obviously, with Paul's experiences with those parents, what Paul cannot be commanding is emotional joy. He cannot be commanding feeling good. What he does seem to be commanding is joy as a fruit of the Holy Spirit, what he talks about in Galatians 5, that if we are united with Christ, we can deal with doesn't mean we will like on an emotional level, but we are able to handle anything that the world throws at us when Christ is at the center. Right? That when we're anchored in, in the rock of Christ, that no matter how much around us goes wrong and inside of us goes wrong, that somehow right, we can remain joyful. At the deepest core of our being, there can still be a level of joy even in the midst of incredible suffering because we feel like and we know that everything is in God's hands. And that's, I think, what Paul is commanding, that if you put Christ in the center, then you can be commanded to rejoice. In our, uh, There's a beautiful example of this, I think, in our architectural tradition in the, in the Catholic Church. Um, it, it's a common feature in a number of the Gothic medieval cathedrals and it's called a Wheel of Fortune stained glass window. And there's a number of these in, uh, in Chartres and in Notre Dame um, and in Siena. Um, and it's called the Wheel of Fortune window. And there, there are variations of it. But the basic idea, if you've ever seen one of these, is at the top of the window is someone that's living high. And usually it's the one in Siena, for example, is a king reigning. So he's depicted at the top of this Wheel of Fortune. But then on the quarter, down, uh, you know, clockwise, down a quarter, he has been demoted to a prince, right, in the Siena one. And then at the bottom, he has been demoted to a pauper. He's a beggar on the street. But then as you go back up toward the top, he's on the ascendancy back to the throne. And in the center is the image, an image of Christ. And the idea is that and there's different versions of it, but the idea is that no matter where you're at on that wheel of fortune, the fortune of life, the waves of highs and lows of life, one minute you're happy and you're riding high and you have the job that you love, the next minute you're fired and you don't know how you're going to provide for your family. One minute you have an incredible friendship and the next minute that friendship just is in shambles. One minute your family's getting along, the next minute your family's in utter dysfunction. One minute you have financial security and the next minute you're really struggling to get by. All of that happens along the outside of the wheel, but in the center of the wheel is Christ. 
And no matter where you're at on the rims of that wheel, if you're linked to Christ, you can experience the stability and security and safety of being centered in him. It's a beautiful image. It's a wheel of fortune. We all know it. Things go up and down. Our emotions go up and down. Circumstances of life go up and down. But yet, if there's something in the center that keeps us anchored, you know, I'm from the lake, so I love the image of, of having a boat, right, anchored, and, and then the waves just, just can overrun it, but it still stays solid, right? It still stays, it stays tied, right, to the ocean because it's anchored or a rock. That there's that hymn, no storm can shake my inmost calm, while to that rock I'm clinging. No storm can shake my inmost calm, while to that rock I'm clinging. Uh, a different historical example. Is anyone familiar with John Lennon's song, Watching the Wheels? You know, I was asking my dad, who's here, if, if anyone would know that Lennon song. Uh, he wrote it a couple years before he died and, um, after the Beatles. It's actually a beautiful description of that Wheel of Fortune image. He says, I need to get off the wheel, basically. I need to let go of, of worrying about kind of where I'm at on the wheel. It's kind of an interesting. So you listen to it. I like Chris Cornell's version better. Uh, than Lennon's version, but listen to that song. It's an interesting take on uh, on the Wheel of Fortune. I also wanted to mention that yesterday I had the honor here in this church of uh, celebrating the funeral of a, of a parishioner, Donna Niehaus. Um, and um, if any of you know the name or the story, um, it was a national story in the 1970s. Um, Donna went through a lot. Um, uh, most famously, her husband, who worked for OI, was abducted in uh, Venezuela in 1976 uh, while they were living down there. Um, and most thought he was dead. Uh, she maintained hope, and uh, three years later, a little over three years later, he was found. Uh, and there was this incredible reunion in 1979. Uh, but then he eventually died in 2012. She lost a son. Um, and she just, she went through just a ton of what I would describe on the Wheel of Fortune. Like before, before he was abducted, they had a great life. They, they traveled all over the world uh, working for OI. They lived in, in Madrid and, and uh, Mexico City. She was at the top. She was riding high at the top of the Wheel of Fortune, right? But then things hit, right? Destruction hit. Terrible things hit, and and but she was on that wheel of fortune. But I never knew it when I met her here for a couple years. She never said a word about it. She was just joyful. People that knew her, like she was just, she radiated a room. I was so moved by her. I didn't know any of this about her life until someone sent me the New York Times article about uh, about Bill's death and, and their great reunion. And I, I didn't know anything about any of her tragedy. She was so joyful, I was like, nothing bad could have ever happened to her. And yet then you hear and you're like, that's suffering that most of us don't go through. Right? She was on the wheel of fortune, but she was centered in Christ. And she kept this incredible peace and joy for a number of reasons, I think. But one of them was she was anchored. She was anchored in Jesus. And it allowed her to deal with the waves and the highs and lows along the outer rim of the wheel of fortune. 
this last thought, the readings speak to this a little bit, that the first reading, the Jews, all that they had been through in the exiles. But you see these little glimpses of that they still have hope and joy in the midst of all they've been through on the outer rim of the Wheel of Fortune in their various exiles, their various persecutions. They still hope in joy, right, because they're still anchored in Jesus. And then John the Baptist in the Gospel, he doesn't get caught up in all of the things around the outside of the, the Wheel of Fortune. People are thinking he's the Christ. And I, I always say, like, I probably would have started to believe my own PR if people were saying that, like, this guy must, I would have probably started convincing myself that that was true. John has none of that. He's just like, no, I'm not the guy. I'm just preparing for the guy. Don't confuse me for him. I am not him. I'm just the precursor. It's all about him, right? I'm not, I'm not taking attention away from him. He doesn't get lost around the outer rim. He stays anchored and centered uh, in, in Jesus. So friends, as we're commanded by the feast today, Gaudete and by Philippians 4.4, that we have to be joyful. We obviously can't interpret that along the lines of emotional joy, circumstances of life, feeling good, those come and go. But no matter where we're at, right, no matter where we're at along the way, the wheel of fortune on, on the wheel, no matter where we're at, living high or living low or somewhere in the middle, we can always have the security right, and the trust if and the joy and peace of, of being centered on Jesus. If we keep him there at the center, and we truly can have joy, spiritual joy. Joy is the fruit, a gift of the Holy Spirit when we keep him at the center of the wheel of our fortune.